Welcome to episode 76 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on Theories of Gender with Jennifer Hockenberry Dragseth. I'm Christina Bieber-Lake, first-time moderator, so be nice to me. And with me today are Katie Grubbs and our special guest, Jennifer Hockenberry Dragseth. Say hello, Katie and Jennifer. Hi. Hello. Here. Right. Since we have a special guest, I'll let her introduce herself last. So, Katie, why don't you start off and tell us a little bit about yourself for our new listeners? Hi, I'm Katie Grubbs. I teach English at Houston Baptist University as an adjunct professor. And um, I live in Houston, Texas with my husband, David Grubbs, of the Christian Humanist Podcast. We have three children. And uh, this semester, I've been spending a lot of time uh, building some online classes, which is something I haven't done before. So I've been venturing into the world of, of content creation for online, which is always interesting. So that's been a big part of my recent past. Yes, and I'm Christina Bieber-Lake, and I teach English at Wheaton College. I've been there for almost 20 years, and uh, yeah, uh, I've got an Anglican priest for a husband and a 12-year-old son, and I'm so excited that we cajoled Jennifer to join us, so if you could give us a little bit of a longer introduction to yourself, that would be great. Sure, thank you. So I teach philosophy at Mount Mary University, which is a Catholic women's college in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And my husband is an ELCA Lutheran pastor, and we have three children. And I've been also teaching uh, for about 20 years, which is crazy, uh, because it doesn't feel like that long at all. And I am this semester teaching women philosophers, which is the class that led me to, to write the book, Thinking Women. So I was just talking about it with my class. I also have picked up a high school class at a local Catholic girls' high school because they wanted to offer a dual credit philosophy class. And so I've been dealing with a little bit younger uh, girl as well. And that's been a really interesting experience seeing how teaching uh, 16 and 17 year olds is a little bit different than teaching 19 and 20 year olds, but not as much different as you might think. So. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's true, right? <laughs> well, I uh, first met Jennifer at a conference this last fall when we were both speaking on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And Jennifer, when I heard you talk, I knew I wanted to get you on the show because I wanted some help. I think all of us could use some help talking through some of the most challenging issues facing Christian feminists today, right? Is how we think about women's roles in the church and how we can think about gender and identity issues, especially with regard to the LGBTQ issues that have been dividing denominations for many years now. In fact, I just talked to one of my friends, Methodist Church, who's having some issues with this right as we speak. So I thought I should say at the outset that we're speaking for ourselves and not our institutions, right? I am not speaking for Wheaton College, right? Yeah, um, just wanted to point that out, right? 
want to have a free flowing conversation and deal with issues that are um, that are often very divisive. Um, I'm really trying to learn and I'm trying to listen. And as I mentioned, when I was setting this program up with Jennifer and Katie, I really want to know if I need to change my mind and I want to have the courage to do so on any number of issues. Right. And so that's why I wanted to have this conversation. So, Jennifer, thank you so much for your book, Thinking Woman, A Philosophical Approach to the Quandary of Gender. And I also want to say I, I knew I wanted you on the show as, as soon as you said that when you Google you, you get Thinking Woman and Devil's Whore, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's the other book. <laughs> <laughs> so her other book is double four <laughs> because I should point out Jennifer's a Luther scholar, which is, uh, you know, what she was talking about at this uh, History of the Reformation conference. So I think your book provides a great set of tools for us to approach this question. And so I have felt frustrated in the past that there hasn't been a lot of structure to conversations about um, what it should be women's roles in the in the church, what should be our approach to LGBTQ issues, and so it's often hard to make progress. So the way that I was thinking about it is that behind the question of women's roles and gender identity is the question of whether gender is something essential to who we are, or is it a social construction? And then, Jennifer, your book nuances these questions quite a bit. So I would love it if you could just spend a little time and tell us why you wrote the book and give us a basic outline of your taxonomy. Um, taxonomy, if that's okay. That sounds great. Thank you. So uh, why I wrote the book is I have a couple of different answers to that. I was putting together book proposals, and I was actually going to be writing a book that compared Augustine and Luther's understanding of Genesis. And it was a really, I thought, deep, rich, interesting question about philosophy of science in the Middle Ages. And I was at the AAR about to pitch this book proposal, and I gave a little talk about my women philosophers class and the different kinds of feminism that come from different understandings of gender. And at the end of the talk, I had five people come up and say, that's the book you need to propose. Just say what you just uh. said, write it down and propose it. And I said, no, 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 that's, you know, I'm, I already have a meeting with a publisher about something else. And they said, no, this is the book that ne people need to hear. So I completely changed directions. And um, I wrote that book proposal. And academic books, I mean, sometimes you submit proposals and you don't hear back for a really long time. Um, but I heard back in two weeks and they said, mm -hmm. this, this is it. We want it. Go for it. And so wow. I thought, well, this must be important. This must be important. So, <laughs> and I have not yet written the other one um, on philosophy of science. So maybe that one just didn't need to didn't need to be written at the time. So the the book itself comes out of a class that I teach. Um, when I came to Mount Mary University, I had come from Boston University. I had never studied women philosophers. And the first class they wanted me to teach was a class about women philosophers. And so I... Because you're at an all-women's college. Because I'm at an all-women's college. And they also asked me why I was interested in applying to an all to teach at an all-women's college and how I thought that would be different. And my answer was terrible. I, I was, you know, <laughs> my answer was... I needed a job and <laughs> I applied to, to this college because it's in my town where my husband has a call. And no, that was not what I said, but that was what I was thinking. 
my head. Um, what I said was something like, well, I think that it's important to empower women. And I think it will be interesting to teach a discipline that's pretty male dominated just to women. And I think that, you know, maybe I can give them some sort of a role model in this field. But when I got there and I started teaching this class, what I realized was that one of the reasons why or, or one of the reasons why I suspected that women sometimes had a hard time working together to move forward on certain social and political issues that help us is that we weren't really sure what it meant to be women. And so mm -hmm. what we thought would help women, we disagreed with each other about. And so I broke it down into these four chapters or these four categories of how we might think about what it means to be a woman and how that might affect our advocacy for women or our kind of feminism. So just briefly, the first, uh, the first chapter is about gender essentialism. Uh, sometimes today we call this difference feminism. And this is the kind of feminism that my, the university I teach at is built upon. It's this idea that men and women are different, that God wants diversity. And so at the, at the beginning, God in the original order, God created two different kinds of people because God wanted two different ways of being human. And this is, you can see this in some medieval Christians like Hildegard of Bingen, but you can also see this in some contemporary 20th century thinkers, uh, especially uh, Edith Stein, but also even in secular feminists like um, Naomi Wolf, for example, uh, Carol Gilligan, you see this view that men and women are essentially different. Their bodies are different, and so their psyches, their desires, their ways of being with each other and the ways of moving in the world are different. And what makes them feminist is that they really believe that this way of being, this feminine way of being, is valuable. And it's just as important as the masculine way of being. And so Mount Mary was uh, instituted in 1911, and it was really this idea that women are different than men, they have a different nature, but we should cultivate girls um, and young women to develop all of their talents so that their voices could be heard in the United States and in Wisconsin so that they could bring their nurturing, gentle, empathetic, relational way of being right into the political sphere, right into the economic sphere, because they had a different way of approaching things and that diversity would improve our political and economic um, way of life. So that's the first view. The second view was the one that I had really grown up with. Um, and, and this one doesn't have as handy a little title, but I call it gender neutrality. Uh, it's really the basis of liberal feminism or, or sometimes it's called first wave feminism. It's the view that the mind has no sex. And as a philosopher, I really, that's, that's how I'd always thought of myself. I was a pretty mm. platonic uh, person. I, I thought of myself as kind of a disembodied spirit <laughs> um, mm -hmm. seeking universal truth. I had mostly men in my graduate program. And when I went to philosophy conferences, especially the kind that I went to because I did ancient and early medieval philosophy, I was usually one of very few women in the room. And I didn't really feel weird about it. I just mm -hmm. felt like 
we're all here to talk about Aristotle, or we're all here to talk about Augustine. And I thought, well, I'm not sure that my gender really matters. Um, and therefore, when you advocate for women, you advocate it in the sense of we're all equal, so of course we should be all given equal opportunity, right? Women weren't allowed in a lot of the universities in Milwaukee in 1911, so you open a school to make sure mm -hmm. that young women have that opportunity. And then, um, because you can't grow up in the 20th century and not be influenced by this next view, which I uh, titled gender existentialism, I certainly understood a little bit of that. And gender existentialism is the idea that while the mind has no sex by nature, by culture, little girls and little boys are trained to be very different. And therefore, by the time you're, frankly, by the time you're five, you have a pretty solid sense that if you're female, there's a certain way of being. And the gender existentialists say that you can't just give everybody equal opportunity because you have to realize how girls have been cultured to be a certain way and boys have been cultured to be a certain way. And you have to undo that culture to help them thrive. And many of the gender existentialists, um, Simone de Beauvoir, I included in that list, Angela Davis and Bell Hooks, really talk also about how race is part of the construct of our identity. And so being an African-American woman is a different way of being in the world than being a white woman in the world, for mm -hmm. example. Not by nature, not by DNA, but by the way that you're treated ever since you were born. And so mm -hmm. that's the way. And so gender existentialist or second wave feminism is still really, really popular. And uh, even my high school girls at um, that I'm teaching right away say, well, if of course, it's different uh, to be a girl, but I don't think that it's in our bones or in our flesh. It's in our, it's in the way that we are raised. So these were my three ways of thinking about gender. And then um, as I was teaching at Mount Mary, I was pregnant with my first child. And we read a book together as a philosophy department every semester. And the book that we read while I was pregnant was called Gender Trouble by Judith Butler which was a book <laughs> blew up women's studies in the United States. And it blew up my little pregnant brain. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I, and when you I take I, on something difficult when you're pregnant. <laughs> yeah. And right? when I finished the book, I said to um, my colleague, I said, I don't think I can be a Platonist anymore. I said, she just threw essentialism into the blender. And I just, I don't think I can ever go back. But one of the things uh, that Judith Butler did, and it's an extremely difficult academic book to read. I yes. mean, I have a PhD in philosophy, and I yes. was looking up words on every page. Yes. <laughs> um, she's famously yeah. bad writer, right? <laughs> yeah, she's gotten better. Uh, she's become yes. more True. famous and speak more. Um, she's gotten better at trying to write in a more fluid language. She also said that she wrote this book. She said she figured 100 people would read this book. And she was just aiming it at a small group of feminists to try to broaden their view. And I think she was as shocked as anybody that she ended up broadening the view of so many people. I would say she's probably the best known American philosopher today in the world. Um, 
Wow, not that everybody, all that people know her names. People know her yeah. names. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what she basically said um, is that gender isn't in the body and it's not in, uh, it's not real at all, but that it's a cultural construct that then creates our bodies, right? So she has this incredibly difficult Hegelian idea that what's happening in the mind is all that's real. And what's happening in our minds makes us make constructs in science uh, and in the way we see empirical and categorize empirical data. And then we think that that's really out there in the world. Now that's a, a, a difficult philosophical concept, but one way that she really made it crystal clear because I had, here I am pregnant and I'm reading it, is she says, one in 200 babies when they're born can't be easily classified as male or female. And they have to go through a collection of tests. And then when the tests for these babies are generated, they make a general category of male or female, but that these babies don't fit perfectly, mm -hmm. right? They might have the DNA, a genotype that's male, but the phenotype that's female. They might have a phenotype or an appearance of having uh, both sets of genitalia or none. They might have um, a hormonal mix in their blood that just doesn't seem to fit their DNA. And as I was watching my pregnant belly grow, <laughs> I suddenly said, oh my gosh, I have a chance that I could have a baby. And when everybody asked me, because everybody does, everybody was already asking, you know, when I was still pregnant, is it a boy or a girl? I wouldn't be able to have an answer. Mm -hmm. And I was praying, God, please make sure that my child is just a cis male or a cis female child and that I don't have to go through this. But also in my head, as I'm praying this is, there are people that have to go through this and I should be helping people enlarge their worldviews so that nobody has to worry about this because it's mm. not a disease. It's not mm. a disability. Uh, mm. And so how terrible that this would be something that we would pray about or, or worry mm. about. And so mm. um, this, this idea, which uh, is now usually called queer theory, or I use the term gender fluidity, is the stance that there's not just two different ways of being in the world, that there's a classification that human minds have created that says these things are male and these things are female. In the same way that humans, you know, Carl Linnaeus decided that there is mammals and there are fish and there are birds and there are reptiles and he created a taxonomy that fits all the animals. And then when the British, after, you know, they're reading the Swedish taxonomy, we all get used to it. And then, uh, you know, 100 years later, they go to Australia and they find the platypus and people say, oh, the platypus isn't real. They must have made it up. They must have sewed a beaver together with a duck or something. People didn't <laughs> believe platypuses existed for like 50 years before somebody, enough evidence was actually shown to people that they said these do exist. And they thought, how could it be? How can there be something that you can't tell if it's a mammal or if it's a bird or if it's a reptile? And then, you know, some somebody reminded them that these were categories that were created by humans. These weren't categories created by God. Mm -hmm. um, so this is this idea of queer theory is that we have invented 
the idea not of gender, which I think we're somewhat comfortable with because we know gender roles have changed, but that we've actually invented the idea of sex. Um, and so one other, I mean, one other way to think about it, because I had a student in my class as we were reading queer theory, she's like, but this is crazy. She's like, we've had it in all of these philosophy and science books forever. How could, you know, how could it be that there's these people that don't fit? And I said, well, we constantly keep changing our category um, of what it means to be male and female. So if you just look at the Olympics, since they started allowing women to participate, they've had a terrible time trying to decide what it means to be a woman. Who's allowed I have to, be to say that was one of the most disturbing parts of your books that I read was that they, that women athletes could be excluded because they weren't female enough. Right. Yeah. That was so interesting to me. That was not something that I had known about before. Right. And so a lot of people just started learning about that in 2012 because that's when we had a really public case of somebody who sure looks female, um, who had been pregnant. I mean, by every understanding that most of us have a female would qualify and suddenly the Olympics say, you're not female enough. It's amazing. So, yeah, I mean, so just quickly, when they first decided to allow women to be in the Olympics, they said, well, you know, whoever says they're a woman, we believe them, right? And then there was some controversy that maybe some people were lying, that there were a few women that were maybe too strong or too fast. They couldn't possibly be women. So they started to do a genital test, which a lot of athletes really disliked. They felt like yes. it was unfair, uh, you know, that they would have to go through that. <laughs> and on top of it, um, they realized that there was more diversity than they had expected, uh, that the people on the Olympic Committee started to realize this is not as cut and dry as they thought. Mm-hmm. So. They were really happy in the 60s when they discovered a DNA test that could determine who was XX and who was XY. They don't have to look at anything. You just put a blood sample in. But what happened is they found that a lot of athletes, not a lot. I mean, we're not talking like hundreds, right? But a few athletes in every Olympics who were very feminine looking in their appearance and in their genitalia were, were coming up with XY DNA. And they suddenly thought, oh, my gosh, like, what do we do? And so um, they kind of put together these general categories of what you needed to do to be female enough. The real controversy happened in 2012 when they added a blood test. And it started because they were testing women well, and men to make sure they weren't doping. And they found mm-hmm. athletes who had extraordinary high levels of testosterone. And they weren't doping. It was natural. And the Olympic Committee in 2012 said, well, if you have that much testosterone, it's going to make you stronger. And then, therefore, you shouldn't get to qualify as a woman. And Mm -hmm. so they they kicked out a number of women. Um, About 5 to 10% of Olympic athletes that are women have high levels of testosterone. It's Mm -hmm. only slightly, actually, only slightly higher than the general population. And... um, what they started to do in 2012, because people were really upset about being excluded, is they told them they could still compete with women if they doped with estrogen. So they had girls on the Olympic swim team, for example, who were told if they took birth control pills, then they could qualify as women. So we actually <laughs> had women artificially making themselves into women because they weren't women womanly enough. And something was just really awry. 
Um, mm-hmm. So in 2016, they changed the they changed the uh, rules again so that a wider uh, variety of women could qualify. But the fact is, if you go now and you look, it says the International Olympic Committee says that it simply cannot determine who is a woman. And so they are just, they admit we are creating a category for this event. And so just, (laughs) yeah, it's really interesting. That said, right, so here I am, I'm writing all this stuff. And at the same time, I'm coaching my daughters. Um, She was six at the time, girls soccer team, because she didn't want to play on a co-ed team. And you're, you're sitting there and you're like, there are such things as girls, right? Like I know right. which ones are girls. Girls exist, right? <laughs> and they want to play soccer together. And if we don't let them play soccer together, they're going to just not play sports. So like, it's hard to balance in my head. And that's part of why I called it the quandary of gender. Because on one hand, it's just obvious that there's that sex is real. And on the other hand, it's also obvious that it's much more fluid than we thought. And so how do we balance these things and try to help all people really have equality and, and livable lives? It's, it's more difficult. So my book doesn't actually tell you which theory I, I think is right, because I think right. they all have something important to, to help us um, yeah. think. I want to get to that conclusion, too. I want to give Katie a chance to just respond to the whole project. I, I know you're probably wanting to say something. I loved the way that you set up this taxonomy because you're right. I mean, when we're trying to, so often when we're trying to approach these issues um, of women's roles or um, LGBTQ rights, we're not always approaching it in a logical, ordered fashion, right? We tend to come from a place of feelings or um, of traditions we might have grown up with. And I really, as a scholar, I really appreciated the idea of, of looking at these four different approaches of the essentialism and neutrality, existentialism, fluidity as a way of number one, showing that um, ideas like those have been around all along. I really appreciated that because I think to a lot of people, um, particularly people not in the academic world, it might seem like gender fluidity or gender queer theory kind of came from nowhere. Um, So I appreciated the way that you went back into the past and we're looking at some of the philosophical frameworks that were leading into um, that particular theory, um, but also the others. And uh, I I think that the way that it's all set up um, makes a lot of sense. And before I began to read the conclusion, I was already I was thinking to myself. Well, I mean, I could see the point of all of these. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was like, too. That's what I was. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I was thinking, and so I really appreciated that, that. That's what you were exploring in the conclusion of all these are good, but at the same time, obviously, all of them aren't completely sufficient. Maybe is a good word because they contradict each other. <laughs> none of them are. I think you know, none of them are adequate um, in and of themselves. And so I, I really appreciated it because I, I think that it. Um, it does. It, it helped me kind of think about my own maybe internalized theories of gender that I ne- hadn't necessarily taxonomized for myself before in that way. So I, th- I thought the approach was was genius. And I, and I and it made me want to take the class. So me too. A plus you know, as far as recruitment goes, it made me want to take the class. <laughs> I did, too. I would love to be your student for a while, Jennifer. You're well, just such a clear thinker. So it's so, so great. Well, it's really interesting to hear the students talk, too, and see where they are and and what they think, because what they often feel like they're all at a women's college, they think they all know what it means to be a woman. And then they start talking to each other and they realize that the person sitting next to them thinks about being a woman in a totally different way than they do. And so that 
It's really fun to see every semester. Yeah, well, <laughs> that is great. Let's let's see if we can get to the nitty gritty. My my design was to talk about women's roles in the church first, and then later to talk about the LGBTQ issue. So, you know, um, Katie, you want to start us out? How does uh, your thinking about women's roles in the church, you know, map on to the taxonomy here? How would you describe your current position? And then I'm, I'm going to ask you, Jennifer, what your current position is after that. You know, um, it's really interesting because I. I feel like I'm kind of all over the place a little bit, having thought through it taxonomically in this way, because on the one hand, obviously, and just some listeners know this just because of previous episodes, but if not for listeners who are new, I'm complementarian. Um, And so, you know, obviously there are parts of, I feel like of my gender theory that are essentialist, right? And that I'm probably, I'm never going to agree with, um, with you know a kind of more queer theory assertion that biological sex is not a fact right I, I, I can't think of it as something that doesn't exist at the same time though you know I, I really appreciate that queer theory points out that intersex people do exist right that it's not for every person it's not a simple binary and that's something that is also real and that is really important um, because Every person's made in the image of God and God cares for every person, Mm -hmm. right? So I think that um, that for me is something that's beneficial about queer theory is acknowledging that those people um, exist and need to be valued. Um, And, but at the same time, you know, I I, I don't think that um, I'm obviously, and some, some complementarians are, would be completely gender essentialist. I mean, you'll find people who say that they're complementarian, who will say that, you know, women shouldn't be pastors and they have these other restrictions for roles for women in the church and will legitimately say that it's because women are in some way inferior. I feel like those people are kind of Christian patriarchy people masquerading as complementarians. Um, But I think that the way that I would probably describe myself, the word I tend to like the best is complementarian-ish. Right. Because I think that um, or some um, some people will like people like Carl Truman sometimes will say mere complementarian. Mm -hmm. Right. In the sense of mere Christianity, the idea that what is on the page in the Bible is what we believe. So if, you know, on if on the page it says, you know, a woman doesn't need to be, you know, a ruling elder in a church or a pastor. Okay, we don't do that. Does that mean that a woman should never teach anything in church if a man is in the room? I don't think that's true. I think, you know, I think that there are all kinds of venues for teaching women in the church because not every position in the church is lead pastor, ruling elder, Mm -hmm. whatever we might call it. So um, same thing in marriage. Um, Some complementarians see, you know, the husband should be the head of the household as he makes every decision. Um, you know, the only thing that really matters about the wife, the best way for her to be a virtuous wife is, is to have a constant pose of submission, things like that. Um, that's not how I tend to feel about it. Um, I feel like in our house, it very much, very much functions as a, if we ever reached a point where we were in complete disagreement, he would get the deciding vote, but it's never yet happened. Mm -hmm. So that's not, you know, that's not how we tend to function. And so I think that there's all kinds of, another reason that I appreciate this taxonomy is because it, for me, it helps explain why there are so many different stripes or versions of complementarianism, right? As I'm sure there are of egalitarianism, but you know, um, there are, um, there's obviously gender essentialism all through complement the complementarian world, but also you see lots of some of the same ideas of gender neutrality, ideas of um, 
you know, giftedness and merit not being um, exclusively along gender lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and I think I have a lot of what, you know, what, uh, Jennifer, what you call gender neutrality in me too. Um, you know, of the idea that we should minister based on our giftedness, um, you know, in the complementary world, I would say within the roles that are available or whatever. Um, but I also think that there's a lot of gender essentialism in me too, because I get one of the reasons that I get frustrated with the complementarian world is that often I think things that are socially constructed, things that seem to me to be clearly socially constructed, um, are seen as essential, Mm -hmm. which is a problem. And one of the reasons I think that that is so obvious to me is simply because, because I study literature of a much prior time period. I'm looking at things that are being seen in the complementarian world as essential and going, well, hold on a second. It wasn't like that in the early modern world, you know, or or whatever. You know, I'm thinking back to previous points in history and thinking, no, it hasn't always been that way. No, that's not something that's, you know, been essential in women since the beginning of time. And so um, I think that some of that gender uh, existentialism, sorry, existentialism is there, too, the idea of trying to recognize um, what things are socially constructed and what things we might consider essential, you know, and I think for me, the things that tend to be essentials for me, gender essentials are things that are the most tied to biological sex for that reason. Um, things like nursing and pregnancy and, you know, things like that. Those to me are things that are the clearest um, what I might call gender essentials, whereas some things that, you know, other complementarians or more people with more traditional views might see as gender essentials, I would look at and say, no, I think that's obviously socially constructed. So it's kind of, you know, mixed up and all over the place. But um, I do think that I've seen all of these approaches happening with probably the exception of queer theory in the complementarian world. And I think I probably in myself, you know, see aspects of all four or might value aspects of all four approaches. Um, I, I realize that's a really mixed up answer, but I'm feeling a little mixed up right yeah, now. And I it's think okay. okay. Oh, I agree. I think it's fine. Um, Jennifer, do you have uh, a thought about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I really appreciate the, uh, the mixed upness. And I think for me, this is an issue that's really dear to my heart uh, as a Lutheran, because right now in the United States, the Lutheran church is torn apart by this issue. And it breaks my heart that Lutherans at the 500th year of the anniversary of the Reformation are not able to even pray together. Mm. They're not able to commune together. And almost entirely, it's based on the issue of gender. And so one of the things that I've been doing the last couple of years is I've been having these, this is going to sound funny, maybe, I've been having these cocktail parties. Because one thing we can still do is drink together. Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, So I've been having these cocktail parties at the American Academy of Religion that are called pan-Lutheran cocktail parties. And I've just been trying to get people to talk to each other a little bit because it has gotten so bad that we won't even talk to each other. And it's, and, and it really, we, we pretend, we pretend that it's based on, well, I believe um, in the Bible and I believe in the Augsburg confessions, but all three branches are saying that, right? They're like, well, I believe in the Bible and the Augsburg confessions mm-hmm. and the other two. Don't. And, and when you look at, what it comes down to, 
a huge part of it is about gender. And so I guess my first answer is I do have a position on women's roles in church and marriage, but I really feel that that is a philosophical issue and an ecclesiological issue. And it's not something that should make people excommunicated over, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you have a different view than somebody else, you shouldn't be told you're not a Christian because of that. Right. And that goes both ways, right? Yeah. So, because I think sometimes um, more liberal Lutherans like like I am in the ELCA will say, well, they're not Christian because they don't accept women's equality. Well, that's still, it's still excommunicating somebody to say that. That's and true. so mm. to say, mm. you know what? We might have a difference of opinion about what gender means, and we might have a difference of opinion about running our church, but we can always pray together. Because I think if you can't pray together, then, then you can't have Christ to heal the unity. And that's really tragic. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of my theological position. Um, my philosophical position is that biblically, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening. One thing is there's no actual definition of male and female given in the Bible. And like I said, I mean, we didn't, we didn't even know that women had ovaries um, or eggs until 1800. That's so, right. They thought that the, the male would deposit this homunculus, right? Right. Mm-hmm. The definition of what is male and what is female, when Hildegard of Bingen and sort of comes up with the first Western view of complementarianism that's, you know, set down in writing, uh, is totally different, like, than it is by 1900, like, even just physically. And so, I mean, Hildegard's a great example. She, I mean, she is a gender essentialist, but she comes to it because she wakes up and she thinks, how do I know all this stuff, right? Like as a woman, I'm not supposed to have such a rational brain. I'm not supposed to be able to read scripture and be able to preach on it, but I can. Mm -hmm. So what's going on? Like, how do I explain my own hermaphroditism here? And what she comes to is that all people are basically mud loved by God. And so when we have insights, it's because God helps us. And so God can give God's charism to anybody. God can give the charism of empathy and gentleness and nurturing to a man. And God can give the charism of preaching to a woman. In Mm -hmm. general, this was Hildegard's view. In general, God likes diversity and so gives diverse roles. But that we always have to be open to the possibility that God may sort of change it up a little bit. And so... Her idea of gender essentialism, which is totally egalitarian, and I really, Katie, your point is really good. Gender essentialism or complementarianism is not patriarchy, um, right? It's that they're both really valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I and may, you may, and, and the stuff you said about Hildegard too, it made me really want to read Causes and Cures because I think when you, you know, you talked about her having this idea of like four different types of men and four different types of women, and that sounded so interesting and prescient to me because it, um, it's, it's hinting at later stuff like, you know what's socially constructed and that every, you know, even if we're in a a gender essentialist worldview, that that doesn't mean that every woman's the same as every other woman, Mm -hmm. you know, that's fascinating. And now I want to read that, that Hildegard text for myself. Yeah, it's good. I mean, she's really a a really deep and interesting thinker that way. Yeah, truly. You know, I'm wondering if, I mean, I I have always had a problem with essentialist arguments in a way because, um, you know, when you don't, 
does the church know service if you are rejecting people who don't fit, right, the norms, right? Uh, I'm with Dorothy Sayers on that one. We're human beings first. Or with Flannery O'Connor, who said she doesn't like to think about people in terms of gender. She says, I just divide up people between irksome and non irksome. <laughs> so I think that's really <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that's a great line. <laughs> yeah, that's a great line. But you know, what what about for for you, Katie, does it come down to um norms in the sense of most women are this and most men are that, so therefore there are these roles? Is that what it is for you? Or is it because um the Bible uh seems to be, you know, one of the the scripture that keeps me from sleeping at night is is First Timothy two, you know, or where Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That keeps me from sleeping at night. But you know, for you, what does it come down to? Honestly, for me, and 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 I think even when I was a child, before I was a, a kind of what we might call a full time scholar as an adult, I always had a concern with with the truth and and with. Um, accuracy and I for me it really comes down to the words on the page and I and for me it's not an issue of most women are like this so these are the roles they should have because like you I'm I I am a devotee of Dorothy Sayers and I think Dorothy Sayers is totally right that when we look at people we should see people as human first and then you know then maybe we look at gender or whatever but for me the reason that I'm complementarian is is not actually because it's um because I love it, or I'm super comfortable with it at times. I don't love the fact that um, that in this particular theological framework that a woman, you know, is is not ever going to be a lead pastor of a church. But for me, there are some verses in the New Testament that are inescapable for me. I can't like if I if I'm looking at the words on the page, I can't escape what it actually says. You know, um, things like you know, First Timothy, I think, eleven. Uh, uh, 2, 11, and 12, um, whichever verse it says that, um, you know, certain types of authority are prohibited. Um, I don't know why that's true, and I don't understand it, um, but it, 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 for me, I can't read it and then go, that makes me very uncomfortable, so I'm going to take that bit and discard mm-hmm. it. Um, and so, and it may, and it's hard. I mean, I don't always like it, and I push against it a lot, and it makes me... I think it makes me inclined to really relentlessly examine every aspect of that theology and say, okay, how much of this is that? How much of this is following the words on the page? And how much is, you know, tradition, social construction? Mm-hmm. I had a, I got, I got really upset in Sunday school on Sunday, but I didn't, I didn't let loose on anybody. But we were, um, we were talking in Sunday school about the tendency of um people always complementarian people to find you know sins before the sin in the fall of man right and you know to find is somehow sinful that eve is um like acting on her own and like having a conversation with the serpent out from under her husband's authority i'm doing air quotes right Mm -hmm. like nonsense like that or you know um trying to to um there was an older man in our sunday school class who was going on about how um you can tell when he's talking to the serpent that she's twisting the words of god because she says well you're not we're not supposed to eat of the fruit or touch it or we'll die and i said well actually 
um, that prohibition was given to Adam before Eve was um, ever alive. She was like still a rib. <laughs> so how do we know that he didn't that he didn't add that? Right. Like we have no proof. The words on the page don't tell us that they don't tell us that she's the one who's twisted this prohibition. We don't know what happened. So we can't then say this is what she's like. This is what she did. And you're right. I, the verse where it talks about she's she was deceived mm-hmm. and he wasn't deceived and all that stuff. Those are verses that are hard to read. And, um, but I do love also, Jennifer, what you, what you mentioned in your book, um, Hildegard's view on that is really interesting too, that the, that the, uh, the positive qualities in Adam and Eve in, uh, in men and women were what led to their downfall that, um, I thought that was really interesting. It makes me want to read more about that too. So that's, that's kind of my roundabout answer, um, Christina, Mm -hmm. is that for me, it really does come down to the text and there being certain parts of the text that to me, um, lead me to that theology, albeit reluctantly. Um, For me, it's definitely not about most women are like this, most men are like this, because to me, it seems obvious if you look around in life, it's obvious that not every man is suited for leadership. Not every woman is very well fitted for submission. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, but I also think that that's one of the ways that God works in my life um, is, you know, by placing me in this context, um, it definitely is good to keep my pride in check. (laughs) Um, and I think that's always been a struggle for me too. So I think that sometimes my struggle against that theology is a way that God uses to sanctify me. (laughs) I like that. Humility is a good thing. Yeah. Jennifer, do you have a response? Definitely. (laughs) Sorry. I mean, I was also thinking about, I mean, because Hildegard does, um, interpret that text from Timothy differently. Um, she says that the reason that the woman was deceived is because she's softer in her demeanor and more trusting, but that that's actually a good thing. And that Jesus also takes on that trusting nature. So she says that while Jesus takes a male body, he takes on um, a lot of the psychic characteristics of women in their trustiness and their willingness to believe others and give them the benefit of the doubt. And so Hildegard says, let's always remember that the serpent is the person who made the error, not it wasn't necessarily Eve um, was worse than Adam. She was different. And that Adam trusted Mm -hmm. his wife out of love for her, which is also a good thing. And Mm -hmm. so the devil will always take what's best in us um, is her view. And Mm -hmm. it's not it's not that this weakness of woman was a bad thing. It's in fact, the weakness of women that allows them to give birth, for example, and nourish children, um, because if they were hard willed all the time and they wouldn't be able to to be mothers um so she does have a different take i also i mean galatians three twenty one. there is no greek or jew there is no male or female mm-hmm. there is no free citizen or slave i think that that's really um it's hard because there's so many different t- texts in the bible and and i absolutely agree with katie that that some of them feel more comfortable than others but that one is a really important one L- martin luther for him that was a huge verse because Aristotle had made these categories in the politics and scholastic theology had then acted as if they were metaphysical reality. And Aristotle said that the difference between a citizen and a non-citizen was whether or not you had the intellectual ability to make a decision. Mm -hmm. And the difference between a male and female is whether you had the willpower to, to follow through on a rational decision. And Martin Luther then looks at that and he says, well, look at the people in the Bible and look at ourselves. He's like, then we're all female slaves. Most of us have no ability to make rational decisions. And when we do, we can't follow through on them. So 
<laughs> all female slaves and everybody, everybody to go to Katie's point too, needs a little more humility um, that if we're able to do anything, it's only by the gift of God. Amen. And I think, I think that's really powerful. Uh, another thing, I mean, um, about like what women are allowed to do or not allowed to do in terms of ministry is a really interesting interpretation. So some churches, um, like Wells Lutherans, for example, think that it means that women aren't allowed ever to speak about theology in front of a man. And women have been fired at uh, Wells Lutheran colleges because they talked in history classes about issues that they thought were too theological. That come on, that just seems what unbiblical to me? Because you have mm-hmm. women, you do have women um, talking. I mean, M- Mary Magdalene is the apostle to the apostles. You know, you have Phoebe, who's the first deacon of the church. You have Lydia, who has her family baptized. So, like, to act as if women can't ever have that role seems that just can't be. That's mm-hmm. just not. Um, the question about baptism in many, many churches has been resolved that women are allowed to baptize because midwives for so many needed to be able to baptize for the, for the salvation or, um, of, of children who, who were not going to live very long. So a lot of churches have allowed women to baptize and Luther, um, for sure said that women could baptize. And so for then for some churches, it's come to the Eucharist. And that's a really interesting one because at least I don't think there's anything that says who can preside over the Eucharist in the Bible one way or the other. And that, so because I teach at Roman Catholic universities, that's always the one where I, where I ask them, I'm like, well, why is that? Because Roman Catholics let women preach and they let women teach and they, but it's just the Eucharist that they're not Mm -hmm. allowed to said, well, where do you get that particular sacrament is the one. Um, And I haven't, I don't feel like I've gotten a great answer on that, Mm -hmm. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, that there's not a good answer. One last person is Edith Stein, who, who says that women should not do the Eucharist. She toes the line. But one of the things that she says that I think is a really interesting complementarian view um, is that whatever women do, they do do differently than men. And that doesn't mean that they won't be, that they shouldn't be able to vote or that they shouldn't be able to be lawyers or doctors. They should, but they will do it a little bit differently. And I do think, because I belong to a congregation where both women and men are, are called and ordained, there is a difference, I think, between the female pastor and the male pastor. That doesn't mean, I don't think it means that one should be allowed to preach and one shouldn't, or one should be allowed to do the Eucharist or one shouldn't, but there is a recognition that the way they go about it looks a little different and feels a little different, and sometimes that diversity actually is really a beautiful part of praising mm-hmm. them. So, that's now, Jennifer, do you think there's any danger of the church losing the beauty of that diversity by responding to cultural pressure for, you know, gender fluidity type of things? So, no, I think that I don't know what I think, but I think that if there is a danger, the danger was more with the gender neutrality. Mm-hmm. That the gender neutrality is that we can all be leaders, but we're all still going to lead in a very white male way. Yeah, that was Mm-hmm. where women started to feel like I can do anything a man can do and I'm going to do it the same way. Right. I think gender fluidity actually is a return to diversity mm-hmm. to say that there are different ways of being human and we have to respect all of these different ways. Mm-hmm. And just really quickly, I'll give you an example of this. So I wrote this book and my husband read it, obviously, or maybe not obviously, but he did. Yeah, my husband says he reads my books. <laughs> 
<laughs> like a couple months after the book came out, a person came to our church and started coming and uh, and came up to my husband and said, I have to tell you something. And, and I'm afraid that if I tell you this, you'll, you won't let me come back to the church. And my husband was like, oh, my gosh, well, please talk to me. I can't imagine what you could say that would make me say you can't come back to church. Anyways, this person told this story um, that her parents had died and she going through their records found her original birth certificate and that she was when she was born, she was given a male name. And so she went back through her medical records and found out that she was labeled as a male. And when she was about 10 months old, the pediatrician said that they thought that there had been a mistake mm-hmm. and that she should, that she was a girl. And her parents agreed to a series of surgeries and hormonal treatments that she was never told about, that she found all this out in her 40s. Wow. And suddenly things that she had never understood about the way her body looked and the way her body developed um, made sense to her. And so she decided to sort of stop taking the medicines that now she knew were hormonal medicines and just let her body be the way it was and um, and, and to go by a name that was more uh, gender neutral. And at the time, her pastor, when she told the story, said, you know what? I don't believe this story. I think you're making it up. Um, what? You're trying to pressure people to believing that there aren't just men and women, and I don't want you to be part of our church anymore. Oh, oh no. So no. She, I know. It's so Man. horrible. So she, oh. she came to our church because she found that she had been baptized at our church all like, you know, 40 some years ago. And wow. so she and she said, would you accept me? And my husband was like, first of all, he said, if I hadn't read your book or talked to you about all this stuff, I would have been surprised. Like, I don't think I would have thrown her out, but I would have been right. like, what are you talking you about? Been, what are you talking about? Right. And right. Like, he said, I wouldn't have handled it nearly so well. And he said, um, so he's been talking with this person for a long time, um, now uses the pronoun they instead of he or she. And uh, she told her story to, or they told their story to the church um, in like a public forum and people clapped Mm. and people, and she started, uh, working with an intersex sort of survivors group and just has really opened up our entire church to this idea that there's more than two ways of being and that we need to be more open. Mm -hmm. And and, and she also brought a speaker to our church named Megan DeFrance who's talking about this. And I, I've been sitting on a school board and we were um, doing our human growth and development. And I had parents calling me up. And again, I wouldn't have expected this who said that they felt like the human growth and development had to say most girls instead of all girls, because there were incidents of adolescents who were cutting themselves because their genitalia didn't fit the pictures that were given in the state curricula. Wow. And wow. So- I was like, this is way more common than I ever thought. There's human casualties. We have to be open to this diversity. So that's a long way of saying, I think that the diversity is real and it's good that we're starting to to come to terms with it. Well, I I agree. And that's an excellent segue to this second part that I wanted us to discuss. So we should move on to that because 
it's rending the church right now, right? The LGBTQ issues. What do we do with different sexual desire, um, gay marriage, etc.? And I, you know, this is a tough question. But if both of you are willing to talk about where you currently stand on this issue, I think it's useful to have a free flowing conversation. Thank you, listeners, for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendation for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For show notes, or for this and other episodes, check out christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Kristen Philippic is our publishing liaison, and Elizabeth Bremner is our intern. For Jennifer, ha- Jennifer Hockenberry Dragseth and Katie Grubbs, I'm Christina Bieber-Lake. Tune in two weeks for an episode on Leah Organa. Until then, in essentials unity, and non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.